Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, a podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders and heads of multinationals. One of the current topics, they talk, we listen. My guest today is a consummate leader with extensive board level experience at both executive and non-executive level. He's a veteran in the management consulting business with 30 plus years in technology and the financial service sectors. To add to this, he has worked as a big four audit firm partner in Europe, North America and Asia Pacific. Before we get into that, here's a message from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by KPMG. In today's ever-changing climate, agility and flexibility are essential to maintain, grow and understand in an uncertain world. Whatever challenges your organisation is facing, we can help maximise opportunity while minimising risk, both today and for the future. Future success means being connected to customers, to market dynamics and digital signals, to employees, to channel and business partners and aligning across the front, middle and back offices. We'll help you to align, to serve the customers better and deliver greater return on investment. With deep sector insight and the latest thinking, KPMG Connected Enterprise provides a sustainable, risk-optimized route and strategy through execution with the tools, methods, frameworks and solutions your organization needs to succeed in today's turbulent world. KPMG Connected Enterprise can offer you an insight-driven, digitally-enabled roadmap to efficiency and agility that delivers sustainable growth to your organization today and tomorrow. Start your digital transformation journey now with KPMG Connected Enterprise. Heads Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Graham Oates was a senior partner at KPMG for 14 years and the managing partner and a member of the UK board for seven of those years. During this period, and despite inheriting a demoralised unit, he managed to rebuild the IT consulting business for KPMG UK to a 50 million turnover operation employing 500 people. Among Graham's accomplishments was a 60% plus growth and net profit per partner, five times the average for the overall firm. Still in the role as managing partner, he eventually managed and was responsible for 1,500 consultants and revenues in excess of £200 million. Graham also launched the firm's internet operations, Metris Europe, oversaw the growth of KPMG business in the Asia-Pacific market and spearheaded joint ventures with Compact, Microsoft and Cisco Systems. Today, Graham's vast wealth of experience has led him to have his hands in several projects and roles to include executive search, the management of his own consulting company, and a number of business ventures, which we may touch upon in the course of this episode. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Graham to this episode of Heads Talk. Hello, Graham. I'm delighted to have you here. Hi, Elaine, and uh, nice to make contact with you again. Yes. It's been, what, probably 20 years? <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll, get, I'll get straight into it. Um, so, okay, we are now nearly two months into lockdown in the UK. Um, over two months now in Switzerland, where I'm based. Um, there is talk of easing the measures and a sense of getting back to something that resembles life beforehand. Um, we will talk about pre-COVID-19 and post-COVID-19, but for my listeners, briefly, what were your thoughts on proceedings as the pandemic unfolded and how has this affected your world? Um, well, I suppose like, uh, like a lot of people and um, actually like quite a lot of governments, I probably uh, underestimated its impact initially. Mm. And actually when it um, 
sort of came to, started to come to the boil in the UK. I was actually in the US at the time. And um, it's interesting, it started to come to the boil there as well. And um, so I actually changed my travel plans and came back early. But within the space of about 10 days, both the US and the UK had gone from really carrying along fairly merrily and uh, not worrying too much about uh, the situation to uh, situations where you were looking at travel bans, where people were kind of invading supermarkets to stockpile goods. And um, very shortly thereafter, you started to get into lockdown situation. So I suppose one of the things it demonstrated to me was however much we think we have everything under control and we're so smart and um, basically control the world. Actually, this has just demonstrated how fragile uh, things can be. And it came, it sort of became clear to me fairly early on that um, although what we were in was pretty, was pretty dire, actually uh, the danger is that the cure could ultimately be more deadly than the disease. And I think um, clearly we've got some big shocks and big issues to deal with. Um, in the future with unemployment, recession, uh, a lot of businesses that won't actually survive uh, this situation and associated, I think, profound economic and social and probably political implications over the next few years. Um, I think governments, to some extent, in a way, although I'm sure they don't think this, but have, in a way have had it slightly easy up until now because they've been dealing with a single issue and a single objective uh, which is to minimize death to ensure that respective health services can cope etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. i think going forward the situation is going to get much more complex and much more complicated and actually maintaining sort of consensus across the population is also going to get much more difficult as well one of the things i um i thought about when i knew i, was, I would be talking with you for the the Heads Talk um, podcast, one of the questions I had in mind was one of those, what would Graham do or what would Graham have done? Um, mm. What if this pandemic had happened during your time as the managing partner of KPMG? We're talking about the mid 90s to early 2000. Mm. Knowing the fact that um, digitalization, online presence wasn't as advanced and as easy to use as today. For example, the, the ease of use of Zoom for video conferencing and Microsoft Teams um, for presentation and visual sharing. How would we in the consulting world have coped and continue to deliver high level quality to our clients under these conditions back then? Let me just add that, yes, forms of video phones, calls and um, audio technology were around and introduced long before say FaceTime or Skype but not universally rolled out or importantly adequate to fully function to the level needed for the work back then. What would Graham have done? Well, I, th I think it would have been extremely difficult actually. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously during that time, uh, say the world was worrying about a different bug then. It was worrying about the millennium bug. Yes. And it was worrying about what was gonna happen when the clocks ticked over at, um, uh, from midnight to one second and of course one of the effects of that was it um, it actually made companies bring forward a lot of technology investment into the late 90s um, and on the top of that was layered the into the whole dot-com bubble and the, uh, which was really based around the 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 growing um, focus fascination and investment in uh, leveraging the internet mm -hmm. um, but as you say uh, technology really was not geared up for 
remote working. I mean, I can remember in those days that often I would leave hotels and my phone bill would be more expensive than my accommodation bill because of all the time I spent on the phone and trying to download um, presentations at incredibly slow speeds. Um, I worked in, I was working in California for the whole of 2000 mm -hmm. and the mobile phone I had, it had to be a special uh, mobile phone with dual SIM because the US and Europe were on different mobile phone standards at those times. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were beginning to, um, as you say, um, develop some of the infrastructure and some of the technology. So we were working with Cisco on sort of voice over IP mm -hmm. um, ideas. We were working with Microsoft and Vodafone on some of the early mobile apps. But I mean, this was in the early stages of where you know the the height of sophistication was doing text messaging and a little bit of multimedia messaging on top probably but so i think it would have been extremely difficult because the environment we worked in and the business model we worked on was that basically um well we did work on a business model that most people shouldn't be in the office but that's because they should be working at the client yeah. Yeah. um and uh, and therefore we had very high density hot desking for the mm -hmm. people who were in the office so I think I think it would have been extremely difficult because I think the technology um, wouldn't really um, have allowed um, the sort of response that 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 we actually that we actually followed. Mm -hmm. So I think we would have either had to have um, um, probably sort of tried to optimize the situation of taking as much work as we could offsite and minimizing the the interactions with clients, which some of which we we could have done. Um, and we could have kind of rigged up certain elements of remote working, I, I would suspect. Uh, but I think it would have been very difficult and to do it within the time span um, mm. that we're talking about now. I mean, it, a lot of the stuff that's been done, I mean, one of the things that's been quite interesting um, uh, in the last two months in the UK is the way the state has been able to mobilize its power and its resources to make huge shifts in resource across the economy, which you won't, haven't seen in, since the Second World War, really. Mm -hmm. um, but but I, think it, I, think it would have been, I think it would have been quite difficult. And I think actually coming in around uh, 2000, early 2000, which in itself was a, uh, was a downturn anyway, <laughs> I think it would have been, uh, would have been quite, quite catastrophic to a lot of the consulting world um, in the short term. I mean, obviously, these things, they go through cycles and, 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 and people come back again as well. Um, but I think, I think it would have exacerbated um, the recession uh, at the, in the sort of 2000, 2001 time. Mm -hmm. No, I totally, mm. I totally agree with you. I, I wanted to put that question to you because I just thought it absolutely impossible during that time. How would we have done what we've yeah. done then now? <laughs> without the technology in place. And one of the things you mentioned in terms of our business model in the consulting world was to be out at client site, to be yeah. to face with them. And the consulting business is very much a face-to-face -face business and being in front of the client. And we talk about, it's all about being, building sound relationships and durable relationships over a period, shadowing them even, depending on the service that we're offering. Can this happen in a virtual setting? I mean. What is consulting going to look like going forward? And are we looking at a, a new era of consulting through remote digital technological means? First, do you agree that a major change is required? And if yes, um, 
will it be will we be as effective as um, consulting was pre-COVID-19? Um, well, I think I think first of all we have to remember is consulting is quite a broad church, mm-hmm. um, and there are so I, for example, I have two clients. Uh, one is a an economic policy consultancy, and one is a data analytics consultancy. And if you look at their business models, um, they they actually spend very little time at client sites. They probably spend time with the clients at the beginning and the end of the engagement. But a lot of the work they do, they do off-site. They can download or suck um, the data that they need from the client, and they can model it and analyze it. Um, Typically, they would have done that in their offices, but equally, um, I'm sure it would be equally feasible for them to do that um, working remotely. So I think there are some, some consulting jobs where they already work uh, and they're able to do a lot of their work um, off-site. Um, the, there are, I then look at another um, consultancy client that I have at the moment, or I did have until until the pandemic came and everything got put on hold, of course. Um, but um, where it, this was a firm of solicitors with a number of offices, and I was reviewing their whole back office for them. And basically there I sort of interviewed about 25% of their staff to start with. Now, obviously, I could have done some of that through Skype or Zoom or Teams or whatever. It's, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it as effectively or as efficiently. And certainly it changes the dynamic um, in, in the way you interact with people. Um, I mean, video, video is obviously better than audio, but it's still not as good as face-to-face. And uh, there's no substitute for when you're working with a client is to actually spend time on the client site to get a real good feeling of the kind of environment of the client, of how it feels to be there as a way of understanding and to really understand the, the cultural side of the business that you can't understand mm. from just talking to people individually. So I think you could take some of that into the virtual world. You can't take all of it into the virtual world. Um, so I think, I think there are some, some issues there. Clearly, if we look at the pandemic, in a way what the uh, lockdown has done is it's, uh, enforced a kind of a lot of employers have been enforced to experiment with virtual working <laughs> employers that would never want to have gone down the virtual working route and it's obviously taken some of the stigma in some people's minds away from uh, virtual yeah. working yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting looking at some of the data that is um, uh, beginning to appear now I think the um, um, and obviously one of uh, a, a survey uh, by um, Collier International Property Services Group. Um, they surveyed 4,000 people. 73% thought their productivity was the same or higher. 76% thought their work-life balance had improved, and 81% wanted to carry on working from home one day a week or more. And twi- Twitter have told <clears throat> their employees uh, that they can carry on working from home forever if they want. Um, so obviously, some some organizations um, uh, can see the benefit. As you say, I think the the thing about professional services businesses is they do require um, uh, involvement with people. I think the other thing is trying to manage 
a virtually dispersed team is not the easiest thing in the world. So trying to run a big program or a big project where people aren't together is going to bring a lot of challenges. And, and uh, therefore, whilst people may well say, you know, well, um, we really can't, this, there are obviously advantages here. This isn't going to fit every business. It will fit some businesses very well. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I think obviously you look at other organizations and what they're having to do is come to terms with when, as we come out of lockdown and they restart their businesses, how they're going to reconfigure their offices uh, where they have to have two meter um, uh, distances between people. I think I, got, I think the estimate is that um, this would mean 60% of all desks uh, that are there at the moment aren't, aren't usable in this environment. So um, I think there are nearly 12 million people allegedly work at desks in the UK or did before the lockdown, which would mean eight, nearly 8 million people wouldn't have a desk. So um, uh, the, there are clearly some challenges and issues there for, for people to look at. Um, I think there's even going to be some talk about doing away with the hot desking yes. concept. <laughs> yeah, I think perversely we, we may actually start going backwards in office design. Um, yeah. So the, the cubicles and the um, uh, sort of glassed in offices that um, were kind of gradually being phased out in the 90s and the early 2000s could actually be um, coming back into play as you look at trying to provide some sort of shielding between between individuals. I mean, one of the challenges, of course, for people is that if you if you suddenly need to um, um, provide two meters in between every um, every employee, the actual uh, real estate cost that people are going to have to face or the real estate cost per worker is going to um is going to increase significantly mm -hmm. as you say that then there will be a major increase of working at home to reduce such costs <laughs> but the, the the issue is of course is it working at home doesn't it, it doesn't suit all employers but it doesn't suit all employees either and i think you know some people are work very well from home some people work terribly from home um, and a lot depends on the kind of the the personal makeup of the individual to what extent they are self-motivated for a start or whether they <coughs> need direction and and assistance so you know it's not a straightforward thing the other thing is that uh, the way you manage and lead a dispersed virtual team is not the same way you can manage and lead a team that's all together in the office. So some of the kind of older style hierarchical um, kind of autocratic management styles clearly don't work in this environment. So that in itself is going to change, I think, um, management style or enforce changes on um, certain management styles as well. I think so. And and actually just looking at on the, the, the client side of things, you know, in, in our work where we tend, tend to do a lot of shadowing of the clients and in quote handholding, how mm. will that continue in this new way of working? I think it'd be quite impossible to have something like that in place. Yeah, well, I think, I think the, whilst, whilst we're told that kind of social distancing is going to be 
part of a, what, what is often referred to here as the new normal, <coughs> whatever that's going to be. Um, uh, clearly, I don't think it, it, it's not going to be a long term, uh, it, it's not going to be possible long term for the way people socially interact, uh, it, it seems to me. Um, you know, the big hope is the whole is the, the search for the vaccine, um, which, um, but, but the, the view seems to be until you have a vaccine, then social distancing becomes the most effective way of, um, of, of containing infection rates. And as you mentioned at the very start, even the vaccine brings its own problems to it. And let's move on to my next point. And you have mentioned as well that many um, organisations were not prepared for this pandemic and have subsequently suffered. Um, take the aviation industry, for example, and retail organisations that do not um, have a fully functional online offering to their clients. In your current line of work, um, what are the problems your clients are finding themselves in or situations they are telling you about? Let's concentrate on technology for this question. And um, what executives and or leaders, interim leaders even, are you looking for to fulfill such problem-solving roles? Um, yeah, well, I mean, as you said, in a way, if you look, um, uh, the, the pandemic has kind of created some winners and losers, although winners is probably in inverted commas, but, um, and obviously online retail, you mentioned is one, healthcare, um, pharmaceuticals, uh, logistics in a, and distribution are, are kind of winners, except they've been, uh, I suppose what what uh, the pandemic's done has actually thrown the whole logistic, global logistics and distribution um, uh, system up into the air. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's been so, but that has created a lot of focus around this, and will continue to create focus. And I, I think I. I read somewhere recently um, that actually getting the global logistics and distribution kind of process and system back to where it was pre-pandemic will take a matter of years uh, because of the, uh, the time it takes to, to get all these things back in line again. Um, and then, so, and, and as you say, there have been a, a, a lot of losers. So hospitality, leisure, travel, uh, which you know uh, again some people might think well these are kind of like luxury elements but they are they do constitute huge elements of, of GDP yes. uh, for most countries okay. um, and uh, a lot of the services businesses uh, a lot of SME businesses um, have been facing pretty well total collapse I mean how do you plan for your revenue going from 100% to 0% in the space of a month I mean, there's no business that's going to have a contingency plan for that, even though if they've got a contingency plan for a recession. Um, so I think, and, and if you look at the winners and the losers, they've, they've both had problems. So a lot of the kind of businesses that are kind of in inverted commas winners, they suddenly have had to massively increase uh, their labor force. Yes. Um, but... Of course, a lot of this is probably only going to be a temporary um, element. It's not going to be long term. Um, and also from a point of view of kind of employment, a lot of it is at the kind of the lower end of the scale in terms of um, in terms of salary levels, wage levels, etc. Um, the and, and therefore and I think the the losers really 
I think they're still waiting for the storm to abate so they can venture out and try and assess the damage. But I mean, we have seen, obviously, in the airline sector, um, mm. some of the airlines have already collapsed under this. And um, we've seen um, Virgin Atlantic, who are uh, desperately seeking funding, have already made 3,000 people redundant and um, have reduced their, um, uh, uh, announced a reduction in their um, their aircraft fleet. Mm -hmm. um, so people are already beginning to take some of those measures, even on the assumption that they can get back to some reasonable level of activity in the future. I mean, one of um, one of my clients that interestingly does seem to have been a winner is a company called Virtual Stock, and they they're actually a platform and a marketplace um, that sits between um, buyers and sellers, and particularly in the retail sector and in the healthcare sector. Um, and I think when when the um, a pandemic started, they had I think twelve NHS trusts in the UK on as customers. Uh, as of now, they've got over one hundred and forty NHS trusts. <laughs> on because one of the issues, obviously, for the NHS trusts is suddenly they have this huge increase in demand for uh, for goods, but also they need to get access to a much wider. A group of suppliers than they could heretofore and this platform actually allows them to get access to a whole range of suppliers um, and very easily and very quickly um, but it, it does seem to me that I mean the biggest problem for all companies coming out of this is continuing uncertainty and, and obviously cash I mean mo a lot of good businesses will disappear just because they they run out of cash um, in terms, but you asked about resources. Well, it, it, it seems to me there's clearly, um, I think HR people are going to be in demand because um, <clears throat> I think looking at, you know, managing these new ways of working, um, mm -hmm. where people are going back into the office, actually ensuring that um, all the working arrangements um, match all the guidelines and criteria all the health and safety guidelines are being met there's going to be huge demand there um i think obviously whilst this has been a skill that's in been in demand for some time digital transformation skills i think particularly focused around moving people from office based to uh, virtual working they're going to be um significantly in demand um I think HR professionals who've actually gone through this process of moving from more office based to more uh, remote working and virtual working and understand the technology and the people implications of that uh, will be particularly valuable. Um, I think also um, actually restructuring um, abilities and turnaround abilities are going to be important because I think a lot of companies will come out of this um, situation basically in a turnaround. Uh, situation so they'll need to take some very quick action um, to actually reshape and restructure their business and make it um, fit to uh, in in the new world so I think those are just um, those are just a few areas where, where you can see some significant um, uh, demand at the moment I was just thinking um, just listening to um, your answer how do you even start to scale up to that level in such a short space of time it, it's a nice problem to have 
but how do you even go about doing that? Um, I think that, that was one of the things that crossed my mind. And I also have a, a, a fairly simple question, I hope, um, but there's nothing quite simple with this current climate. Um, and it, it, it touches upon the winning side, um, as you mentioned as well. So mm. what unexpected business opportunities are you seeing as a result of COVID-19 or just during this period? You have mentioned um, some information, or just anything that you've not mentioned, please add to the answer of this question, and uh, it's a fairly open question, and mm. um, please uh, sort of feel free to answer it um, with new business ventures, collaborations, perhaps the revival of particular service offerings, or as in a, a previous episode of Heads Talk I had when I, I spoke to a CEO that was featured, he discussed um, the wave of uncertainty and the astonishing level of uncertainty with his clients, um, which meant more consultative involvement beyond that which was agreed and given. It, what have you found in terms of opportunities that were there for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I think down down the line you can see, and and um, whilst whilst um, it's well known that um, on the whole consultancy follows the kind of the economic trend with a with a lag basically. So when you get a downturn, consultancy turns down, but slightly later than the overall economy, and, and it turns up. Um, uh, slightly um, it turns up following the overall economy but slightly later actually um, as we know certain types of consultancy become even more valuable in a downturn than when things are, are going well and that's particularly I think on the ad, on the advisory side and particularly um, on an advisory side that is focused around um, specific issues or a specific set of issues. So I think I think there are um, I think uncertainty is the biggest issue at the moment because the thing is about the environment we're in and the situation we're in at the moment is nobody really knows when the economy is really going to start functioning properly again. Mm -hmm. So and you know nobody can make any plans to do anything to go anywhere to uh, which means you know, most people probably aren't um, spending money down the in in the future. They probably have less money to spend anyway. So I think uncertainty is is a problem, and I think um, it's it, it's very difficult to really do any effective planning or advice until you know until some of the uncertainty dissipates. Not all of it will, but you need to start think getting to a point where there is some kind of level playing field that you can operate from i think what you can do in the in it whilst uncertainties it is is at its height is to is to look at a number of um uh, uh of possible scenarios of what to do if this happens that happens or the other happens um but i think bearing in mind uh, uh, as i said a lot of companies are wondering whether they're going to still exist at um at, at when they come through this, then, then in a way, I think a lot of organisations are almost putting that sort of thinking on on hold. Uh, so, what, what I've found is so um, so a number of um, businesses I have been working with through this are actually potentially new businesses, um, and interestingly, th three of them are COVID-related spin-off businesses in the. Uh, uh, in the biotech and the medical research world focused around kind of AI and machine learning. Mm -hmm. um, so this is, that's a good example of where 
you know, every problem spawns an opportunity type situation. Um, I've been working with a couple of major social media, new social media businesses, uh, really, for the last couple of years. And they are are quite innovative and exciting potential new businesses. And one of the things we found um, through, as we go through this situation, is actually um, government interest. So not necessarily the UK government, but the interests of governments Uh to um, foster and support uh, new businesses that are innovative in the use of technology that can actually guarantee uh, good levels of employment, provide leading edge skills and generate sort of revenue back to that country. There's a lot of focus and a lot of interest um, from, um, from governments and, you know, national regional governments around attracting and funding some of those opportunities because they can see that a lot of their existing um, businesses are are actually uh, struggling so that's an interesting um, side effect of this and then I think that finally the uh, final business I've been working with is actually a German business in data analytics space and I'm um, helping them set up in in the UK and they're basically a data analytics stroke consulting business Mm -hmm. and um, interestingly they're focused around revenue maximization Mm -hmm. and clearly going forward trying to predict customers behaviors and how they will those behaviors will change will be vital for businesses to survive and this sort of business actually has the tools to be able to predict and analyze this change and help help um, businesses um, just maximize revenue that they can get out of their existing customer base. It's not necessarily about them going out and um, going into new territories or inventing new products or spending a lot of money acquiring new customers. It's actually how you can just maximize the situation you've got, which I think will be very valuable in this situation as well. So I think there is um, uh, quite a number of um, interesting opportunities there. So, uh, and I think, you know, we, we sometimes um, think that kind of the world's stopped, although when you go outside, it's clear the world hasn't stopped every, <laughs> every day. Um, but actually, there are still, you know, people coming along that people's brains continue to whir and continue to turn. And, um, you know, there is no end to kind of human ingenuity to look at how they can, how they can uh, kind of exploit any given situation, I think. What, what is the phrase? Is it necessity? Is the mother know. of all invention? Yes, yeah. that's the one. Thank you, Graham. That's <laughs> okay. the one. It's perfect. Oh. Um, um, but sort of staying with um, the government theme that you you introduced, um, um, I'd like to sort of move on slightly from the consulting and into the government space. Um, what has been forgotten during this pandemic is the topic that has pretty much dominated public discourse in the UK and in Europe for the last three to four years, Brexit. Um, We do know that the UK has agreed to exit the Union. It will be a a done deal at the end of the year unless an extension has been granted because of the coronavirus. Thus far, this has not happened. Um, We are in the deal negotiation phase and if a consensus is not reached, the UK will exit, so we've been told, under the WTO rules. Um, 
what are your thoughts on this? Um, what should a good deal look like? What is the best case scenario for business, in particular consulting business, and why? And I'm asking you a very big question because so far in government, that question is still being asked. <laughs> good yeah. So yeah. Um, feel free to answer it as you, as you wish. Well I'm, well, I'm sure as nobody else seems to have an answer to this, <laughs> I probably won't have an answer to it yeah, either. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and although I live in Cambridge, which I think voted something like 78% to remain in the referendum. And is, mm -hmm. um, um, actually, uh, including myself, um, I once we, it was decided that um, we were leaving, my view consistently has been that we needed to, having decided we were going to leave, we needed to leave, we needed to get the other side of that, mm -hmm. and we needed to be back into an environment that we, we knew what it was and how we could deal with it. And I think, you know, what, uh, and, and the problem about the last nearly three years now, I suppose, is that um, Brexit has just bred uncertainty in the UK business environment. What COVID-19 has done is, is it's kind of, it, it's created uncertainty um, in in a way that has has made even Brexit um, go into the shade, I think. Yeah. But I think um, uh, um, to quote Boris, uh, I think now more than ever we just need to get Brexit done, and we need to get the other side of it. And because um, it, it does seem to me that you know, I mean, obviously Brexit, in a way, uh, like Trump in America was really a function in my mind of a something of a crisis in Western democracy in the last mm. few years, which I think has also been reflected in other European countries in uh, the rise of the right and of nationalist views, et cetera, et cetera. And there is, there has been this kind of um, pushback against, you know, the, the big state or the meta state as you might see the EU. Um, and, Obviously, one of the things that the pandemic has done is it's now raised questions in people's minds about the whole globalization concept as well, uh, which is, again, you know, another element about how the, the kind of world works together. So I suppose the, the only thing we can see where it's clear that, and the way the world has dealt with the pandemic has hardly been um, a, a, a sort of paragon of joined up thinking and cooperation. Um, it's been very much on a country-by-country country basis. If you go to the US, on a state-by-state state and almost city-by-city city basis. Um, the EU hasn't had huge visibility in terms of um, addressing um, the COVID issue um, across its territories. It seems to have been very much driven nationally. Yes. Although I do notice today that um, France and Germany are pushing now for a, I think it was 500 billion euro mm -hmm. recovery fund which yeah, i think uh, by the others. <laughs> <laughs> yes um so i i mean i think i think um that uh, so i think brexit needs to get done i think there are still big personally i still think there are big issues around the eu and the future of the eu um and, I, and as i said i think that um the pandemic has also raised questions now about globalization. So it's going to be interesting to see how that 
impacts back onto the way in which um, countries actually now begin to look at um, investment in industries and services and to what extent they want to start trying to pull more, uh, become more self-sufficient again, rather than relying on kind of the rest of the world to supply them with things. Because, you know, that's one of the things where everybody struggled in mm. the pandemic, because all of a sudden everybody in the world wants the same thing at the same time. And um, inevitably, they look after themselves before they look after their uh, far-flung customers. Um, so, so yeah. So I think I think we just need to we need to get past the pandemic, and we need to get past Brexit, and then at least we can we know what we have a planning situation where we know what we're trying the environment we're in at least for for the short term anyway. Um, get past Brexit, get past the pandemic. That's a really big hill to climb. Right? I know. Well, that's right. But as I said, you know, it kind of makes um, Brexit look like an, yes. Yes. A, a minor issue. Exactly. So it sort of makes page 23 in the newspapers these days. So, yeah. Um, you know, this statement, lessons will be learned. And we hear this all the time in politics. Um, now, this question is fairly broad. So answer as you wish. In your view, what lessons will be learned post-COVID? Um, what will we not um, allow to happen again if we have another outbreak or pandemic? Um, I think it's I think it's really quite early to say mm. um, to really take a view on this. Um, and uh, clearly, um, most countries would caught napping by the pandemic but then on the other hand you know why would you ever sort of plan for a situation that that kind of probably happens every few hundred years or whatever I mean for all yeah. we know it might it might be a more common occurrence we don't know and I that will no doubt be you're saying it will mutate and next year we'll have a different sort of strain of it well, that's right, but at least the at least the scientists have now got it under under focus, and they will be analysing analysing it to the nth degree. I think. Whereas I think when uh, when it first appeared, you know, they had very little knowledge around this. But the amount of um, scientific academic focus that has been put into this in the last few months has obviously been enormous so you have to assume it will actually that people will find a way of of getting on top of it and managing it and i think the that has been one example of where the world probably has worked globally they have worked quite effectively together and i think there are over a hundred uh, vaccine projects globally but they are actually sharing data sharing information and everybody's quite clear that you know whoever whoever gets the um, find, finds that the, the silver bullet then everybody will be able to benefit from that um so i think i think it's difficult to to kind of um to look at lessons um yes. except that nobody was really prepared for this um and I think probably um, you can look at various countries that seem to have done better than others. Um, so South Korea did quite well, but I think South Korea was 
a much better prepared country because it had been more impacted by SARS and MERS, whereas I think Europe hadn't been so impacted by that, so therefore hadn't put in place uh, the infrastructure to allow for that. I think Germany did quite well, but Germany has a very good uh, kind of medical testing industry, which because um, the UK is now trying to build from scratch as a result of the uh, the pandemic. So I said, as I said, one of the things that's interestingly been happening in the UK is that uh, all of a sudden the state is beginning to, in effect, um, invest in the creation of whole new industries, which in the past we've been very happy to take those services from elsewhere mm. but that as as we know that has a you know that can also have a um uh, that also has the downsides with it in if everybody starts you know doing their own thing mm. um but um i think we need to probably wait at least 12 months before we can really um really take all the all the lessons out of this and whether any lessons have been learned at all of course i mean it's interesting that the us have already been saying they can you know they can decommission their um, and they're they're kind of a lot of their special um organizations that have been set up for this Mm -hmm. so which doesn't seem to me like learning lessons at all but anyway um i'd like to end on this question um i've asked previous guests this question and Graham, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on this. Um, I think it's a positive question. Um, what are your personal positives or silver linings of COVID-19? Give my audience some examples. Of yeah. Um, well, I suppose <coughs> uh, to start with, you'd say it's maybe difficult to find a civil, silver lining in an event that has already caused more than 300,000 deaths across, <laughs> across the globe. Um, I, think, I think if you look at... Um, some of the impacts in the UK, um, certainly you've seen very strong unity of purpose through the lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think it'll be much harder main, to maintain that as we as we exit the lockdown. Um, as I mentioned, you can see there's been truly global efforts um, uh, to deal with the whole vaccine issue mm-hmm. and vaccine discovery issue. Um, I think it's demonstrated that I think it's demonstrated the power of thinking the unthinkable, bold thinking. So what's happened as a result of this is um, governments and businesses and people have been forced into doing things they would never have considered doing. And surprise, surprise, they've actually found there are some positives out of that as well as some of the negatives they maybe suspected. Um, I think um, even from the examples I've quoted, you can see innovation and creativity uh, will respond to new situations. Um, so you can see that, um, and that's why I think, you know, future futurologists or whatever they're called always seem to get things wrong because they never can never factor in enough the way people will respond to situations and actually think of, of ways of circumventing or mitigating situations or actually finding opportunity in difficulty and clearly um, it, it will it, it, it underpins and underlines this whole <clears throat> I think mo- you know it, momentum that was already there around 
um, the, the greener planet and greener and more sustainable planet. And people have seen <laughs> the impacts of shutting down the global economy um, for a, um, a, a reasonable period of time and what impact that has ha already had on on um, on the environment that, that we have. That's very powerful. That's very powerful to watch. Um, yeah. So uh, the, the question is whether that kind of um, uh, you know whether that momentum will be carried along, or whether people will then start getting diverted into in, into other issues. But I, I I think that's probably the the biggest silver lining you can get out of this, and I think that's been reflected in the way in which probably people are beginning to look at. Um, the way they live their lives and you know the way they work the way they travel um mm -hmm. etc yes uh, mm. I'm, I'm seeing that and i, and I think you're absolutely right mm. graham Oates, many thanks for your time and insight thank you it's been a pleasure elaine thank you Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, decision makers, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.